We continue in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 20. I'll give you a heads up. Next week, I'll be in verses 21 through 25, 24, I think. And um, usually I go on Communion Sunday to John or somewhere and preach on redemption or atonement or something about it. Well, it turns out that the second part of this uh, these sermons is talks, talks about being bought with a price, so we'll be on the topic anyhow. I'll stay right here. Plus, this is all kind of a unit. I'll show you that on one of these slides. So our passage is 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 20, title, Live in the Situation of Your Calling. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for wisdom. Pray that we'd all open our hearts to hear what you say and have the wisdom to make appropriate applications. And Lord, whatever we decide and do, may we be honoring to you and may we love you with our whole hearts and care for one another. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to say, let's go to verse 17. I have the most notes, at least on my end here, on this particular verse, that I don't know if I ever heard a sermon preached on this. Uh, So I think I'll start there. Somebody probably has. But it's certainly not how American Christians, probably people everywhere, but particularly American Christians, see it, think about it, or look at things. What seems shocking to us is that Paul is saying that wherever you are when you're called to him, stay and serve. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, from the Net Translation. Nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each person, so must he live. I give this sort of direction in all the churches. Now, to put this in context, last time I was in 1 Corinthians 7, we were talking about situations of a a marriage, husband and wife, where one of the spouses is converted and the other is not, and what to do in that situation. So by way of review, I'll read 1 Corinthians 7, 15 and 16, which leads up to this. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? When I preached that, I laid out Paul's intent is that you stay where you are, witness for Christ, pray to be a godly influence, and not uh, upset families and social relationships unnecessarily, knowing that the radical change that comes about when God saves someone is a profound thing, and it certainly has consequences. And it has consequences in our families, our work situations, our neighborhood, anywhere we are, because conversion is going from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to God. And things change, and they change radically. So Paul is saying, 
that does not mean that we purposely try to change other things that don't really need to be changed. Now, behind this, I hope I can explain it well. There's another slide on this when we get to chapter 7, verse 20 today, is that it's God's providence, which covers all things, that is such that wherever we were at the moment of our conversion, when we heard the gospel, God put us there. So here we have this word aside. And many people think that before conversion, they were just going willy-nilly here and there, and God wasn't involved at all. Now all of a sudden he is. But providence is not um, just a random, chaotic, meaningless thing that's happening because life is like that. Providence is God's oversight of history, which includes all things. You can look up the all things verses in the New Testament. Now, without serving God, we were sinful, alienated from God, doing our own thing. But nevertheless, at conversions, in his providence, we lived a certain place, we had a certain job, certain family, and so on. And that's what's addressed here. So the term assigned here, merizo, uh, which I have that on a sub-point here, could mean apportioned or divided. We'll look at a verse that uses that as well as the other word here called, kaleo, by the way, which is thematic, used nine times in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 15 through 24. The call here that Paul is talking about is the call to relationship with himself, the call to salvation. In theology, we distinguish between the universal call and what can be called the internal call or the effectual call. So when the gospel goes out and the word of God is preached and the person of Christ is described and his command to repent and believe the gospel and to trust in him, find that blood atonement that he provided by trusting in him, everybody hears it if it goes out audibly. Those who respond in faith are the called in this sense. That's what he's talking about. Because otherwise, if the whole household heard somebody preacher saying, you need Christ, it would automatically apply to everybody. But it can't be that meaning because the called would be the one who responded, who is here addressed by Paul. Assigned is a portion divided, called, kaleo, here would be the internal call or the effectual call, depending on the terminology one uses to describe that. So each individual who had been converted has a unique place and situation. And so it is. In my case, I was a second um, trimester, or we were in a quarter system, second quarter junior at Iowa State in chemical engineering. Now, when you're called as a college student, you're already in a state of flux. You don't have a house. You don't have 
you know, your career and all the things that people have, you're already, well, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. So when I was converted, but I was studying chemical engineering, and through a supernatural state of affairs that happened, amazing interventions of God, I knew that he called me to preach the gospel. So I walked away from that and transferred over to college to study theology. But that's not the norm. Everybody has a unique situation. I could have stayed there. In fact, that's what I intended to do. I went back, I started my studies, and the first thing that struck me was this. Christians must get straight A's. Because normally, well, the weekend's coming, and this is happening, we're going to do this. There's going to be a party, all this. And my roommates, that's what was going on. I didn't have anything to do but study. So I was, I'm going to get good grades. But I was soon at, at, at North Central. But the fact is that we need to be a witness to Christ wherever we are, wherever we're called. Uh, let me, if you want to turn to this, turn to Romans 12 and verse 3. With this will, uh, Romans has a slightly different context, but both words are used here. Oh, by the way, the word live, peripateo, means to conduct one's life. Now you're a Christian. It doesn't mean you quit your job. It doesn't mean you have to have a different family. You have to move to a different geographic location. It means you conduct your life where you were, but now as a Christian who gives glory to God. Okay, Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted, there's our word merizo, to each one a measure of faith, and allotted there is merizo. Now, each one is important. It's thematic in 1 Corinthians, and I'll talk about that some next week when we talk about being a slave of Christ. The next theme is slavery. Each one is important. Each one uh, here shows up in this verse, hekastos. And that word in the Greek means each one as an individual person. In biblical Christianity, the individual is important. Each individual called certain gifts, certain things to need, certain things to contribute, and that's thematic in 1 Corinthians. And I'll talk about that more next week. This, each one, has a place by God's grace. The world is always looking to see who's the greatest. And then when the disciples in Luke, for example, started arguing who's the greatest, Jesus rebuked them. Now, the Corinthian church is arguing who's the greatest. I'm a Paul, I'm a Papalos, I'm a Peter. Well, I'm the real, the one who's really of Christ. Paul rebukes a lot of them, saying, you don't know. Don't go on passing judgment before the time. Wait until the Lord comes, who knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. Who has the greater gifts? Well, Paul says, each one, Kostos, has a gift signed by God. 
and it's important, and it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter who thinks it's great. It doesn't matter whether in the estimation of the world it's important or even in the estimation of the church that might not be thinking clearly. The term called has God as the subject, and the person who's called is called to salvation. I'll cite some scholars to show that there's some really great material out there to help us understand this. Um, Paul Gardner, Zondervan an exegetical commentary in the New Testament, has been so helpful. That was in, from 2018, so they're writing some good commentaries. Gardner, the person who is converted, called, says Gardner, has his spiritual status changed by that call not by seeking to change social status. To those who may have felt that divorce of an unbelieving spouse would be better than their spiritual, would better their spiritual position, Paul reminds them of their original call. There's no requirement to change social situations to prove spiritual status. That struck me when I read it. There's no requirement, says Gardner, to change social situations to prove spiritual status. That's why it's so egregious when churches demand upward mobility and you'd be embarrassed to go if you don't have a fancy car. That should never be. Because God saves who he saves as they are, where they are, and you don't have to get on the upper upward mobility train to be acceptable in the eyes of Christ. It's so wicked when that happens, but yet it does, and it did even in the ancient world. Because our new place, our standing before God, is to be in Christ and to be heirs of salvation, sons and daughters of the kingdom. And that in itself transcends all of these other things. It doesn't matter what people think about us. It matters that we're in Christ. I'll talk about that next week some. We talk about slavery. Back to that statement that he made. Um, He goes on and says this. Thus, if the Corinthians have been arguing that certain grace gifts and certain lifestyles or actions bring them into a more spiritual state, then Paul denies this by arguing that all are dependent on living as befits a person called to belonging to the Lord. Now, there's some obvious exceptions. If you're a mobster, uh, a robber, a drug dealer, and so on, your entire situation is utterly sinful, and that's not appropriate career for a Christian. But that's the exception. Most people are living as ordinary people in society one way or another. And this doesn't mean that you can't continue if you're uh, in the world a seemingly person of impact like Lydia, Philippi, and, and some of the other people that God used. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make you less. It doesn't make you more. It makes you a person converted that God uses. And what joy it is to be part of the family of God where we accept one another and love one another 
and don't cast judgments based on, well, you don't have what I have. We shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. Here's my statement that I put in the notes to make sure I, I shared with you. Whatever your status upon conversion, live it out in a godly manner that honors God. This, this does not imply that God will not providentially bring changes over the years. But it does not, but it does mean that we don't seek a social status upgrade to prove we are better Christians. God will use our current situation. Paul makes this clear by giving it his apostolic direction to churches, not just Corinth. Stay where you are, serve God. Something changed as part of God's providence. He's not forbidding any change, but he's forbidding change for the purpose of making yourself greater in somebody else's eyes by upgrading your social status. Look at me. I'm important. Look at you. You don't have anything going for you. That shouldn't come into the church. Dr. Thistleton, by the way, fantastic commentary, rather technical. This is very helpful. He says the circumstances of daily life are no less a matter of what the Lord and his purposes, not ours, assigns to each. This is word assign. This Pauline concept of call and service as Thistleton varies greatly from that of our secular modernity, which gives privileged place to autonomy. From that of the secular post-modernity, he says, which gives privilege to self-fulfillment and to power interests. I do what I want, when I want, I'm my own master, get over it. Is that a Christian attitude? No, but it's a worldly one that's very common. He goes on and says, these stand near to Corinth and to Paul. The Corinthians were like that. That's why he's writing this to them. It's relevant. Let's go to verse 18. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in circumcision? Excuse me, in uncircumcision, he is not to be circumcised. This one kind of threw me for a loop when I first read it. And, and well, what is this all about? Well, it turns out there's an objective reason for saying this. And several of the scholars pointed this out. In 1 Maccabees, I know, now, by the way, it's not part of our canon, but it's intertestamental Jewish material that gives us some insights on how things were in Judaism. And there's a passage there where it mentions those uh, Jews in, in the Hellenistic culture who go to the gymnasium or maybe participate and they were embarrassed that they were Jewish and they were ashamed of their Jewish heritage. And several have pointed out from historical sources that there was, and I have this on my notes, there's a procedure that would hide their circumcision. And you might think, what is this all about? I have to preach it. Here's the verse. Here's what you need to know. They did, have, they did not have Nike gym shorts back then. Okay, and there were some Jews who were embarrassed. And so they tried to hide that. 
Paul said, you don't need to do that to remain where you're called. Don't be embarrassed. If you're poor, don't act like you're rich. If you're doing a job that's manual labor, don't act like you're the top boss, even if, you, if you're not. If you're this or you're that, and we'll go to another thing next week, slavery. If you're a slave, remind yourself you're a slave of Christ. So there you go. I gave you the result of my research. No one comes to Christ who comes to Christ needs to find higher status in the eyes of the world. Do not ever be embarrassed that you're a born-again Christian, but you're not someone the world would envy in that way. You're not, you don't have the best of this or the best of that. Or maybe you do have something that someone might want. It doesn't matter. That's the bottom line. It doesn't matter. And we can't begrudge people their uniqueness, who they are, where they live. We shouldn't even be concerned about it. God saves rich people like Lydia and Acts and slaves and everyone in between. And we have a new calling, a new status and that is children of the king. Children of the king. Called, the word called here, nine times it's used in verses 15 through 24. Here's my statement. God is in charge and is the one who called us out of darkness into the light of his son. And what a joy. What a joy when so-called you end up somewhere where other people know Christ, the gospel is preached, the word of God is honored, and they accept you. Wow. And that's what happened in our case, some in our family. And uh, sometimes you, you feel out of place. I'm really uh, saddened as I've studied this and think about it. I'm also saddened by recent developments, I mean the last 100 or 150 years, where the ordinary gospel Christian, the sort of songs they sang, people they were, longing for the return of Christ, having a home in heaven, had to go away because that was escapism. That was what a defeated Christian looks like. If you're longing for heaven, you're a defeated Christian. If you're longing for the return of Christ, you're a defeated Christian. And some, even in this New Apostolic Reformation, I cited someone to this end, said, and they think that Christ is going to come to, to receive to himself a disease-ridden, poor, defeated church. We're not worth, some of these people say, Christ coming for us because we don't have anything going for us. If you're sick, you're defeated. If you're poor, you're defeated. If you don't have status in the eyes of the world, you're defeated. Get your act together. They say, become somebody, stand up and get rich and powerful, and eventually you'll be the conquerors. That is so prevalent. And I wonder if any of them even read these verses. Do they ever even contemplate what the Bible says? Do they pay attention to the values of being a slave of Christ? Next week's sermon. Being uh, uh, 
<laughs> a child of the king. Some of the, the hymns that you saw, I've been listening to a different channel somebody told me about on Sirius. I got the channel because they did some service on my car. There's a channel where they're singing these old, they call it Southern Gospel. They're singing about longing for heaven. I'm not embarrassed to long for heaven. They're singing about being a child of the king. I'm not embarrassed to be a child of the king. And so we need to be sober-minded. We're not failing God or being a bad testimony by being ordinary and loving him. That's the point. It would be similar, as Paul is saying, to a Jewish person under the old covenant being embarrassed that they're Jewish. Dr. Thistleton, again, uh, his commentary is very helpful. To remain Jewish or non-Jewish, he says, does not spring from general indifference, but from its salvific irrelevance. As in the case of gender, such distinctions are not abrogated wholesale. Whether for friendship or for a witness of the gospel, there need to be Christian Jews Christian Gentiles, Christian singles, Christian married. Then he points out the new creation transforms and relativizes such distinctions. But they have a place. See, providence is not happenstance, randomness, and things just sort of happen. Providence is a strong doctrine in the Bible, and it's God overseeing history to bring things somewhere that's salvific for those who know him, to conform us to the image of Christ. And in God's providence, where you were converted at that moment, called to him, is significant. Because God has distributed, as he saves people on the scene of history, in the scene of their witness. Again, I'm shocked at how Little popular evangelicalism has any intent of listening to this. As I'm, I'm looking at this, in fact, let me hold this point as we go keep moving here. I got to flip a slide every once in a while. <laughs> this is not like Sunday school where we just go through one and got to come back next week for one more slide. Only circumcision of the heart leads to true obedience. So God changes us. When we get to the next slide, brings up providence. I'll, I'll make a point about something. I'm reading a book right now at the behest of a friend of mine who lives in Japan and is saying just the opposite of what Paul says. But it's a popular Christian book. Okay. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Now, it was interesting last week as Eric brought up Deuteronomy 10, 16, and 36. I, verse 6, I already had this, all this done. And so either Eric and I are on the, thinking the same or uh, hopefully we're right together, not wrong together. I, I, because it's biblical, this is the truth. I'm glad he covered that, so I won't go into detail. But basically, there's a command to circumcise your heart, and then later a promise, I'll circumcise your heart. Some people in their philosophy say, God will never command what we can't already do. 
wrong. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. I heard that in certain classes when I was in seminary. And every time, up goes my hand. So God won't command what we're not already able to do, even if we're not converted. False. There's so many counter claims to that. Who has the ability to circumcise their own heart? Who has the ability to know the heart? Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, know the heart. God is called the heart door. We can't even know what we need. But God commands to change. Why? To show us our need for Christ. To show us we need God to do for us what we could never do. That doesn't excuse sin, but it shows the need for grace. We're fallen sinners who need a Savior. So how are we going to keep the commands of God? Jesus said in John 6, the command of God is to believe in him whom the Father sent. Says obedience requires an interchange. And yes, it's true. It's objective. It's substantial. It really happens. When people are converted, they can't merely go back living in the sinful lifestyle they had before. We know we can't. We know it grieves the Holy Spirit. We know it isn't right. And, um, but that's a work of God. We wouldn't even have wanted to change had God not converted us. We need a change of the heart. Romans 2.29 talks about circumcision in the heart. Let me read that. But he is a Jew. You can turn there. I'll show you something about how plays on words happen in the Bible. Uh, Romans 2.29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is from men, not from men, but from God. Now, the word Jew comes from Judah, and it has to do with praise. So being descended to be Jew means praise, but if you're going to really give praise, you have to have a circumcised heart. You're going to honor God. You're going to praise God. When we praise God, we're praising him for what he's done and who he is. Who he is. We're blessing God for his glorious deeds, his magnificent person, his virtues, his attributes, and his love and his kindness. Our worship should be focused on God's and his goodness as we seek to do. Now, I won't cover Deuteronomy 10 and 30. Eric covered that last week. But let's look at some passages in Jeremiah. Maybe jot these down. There's too many to turn to all of them. But Jeremiah 4, 4. I'll cite it. Jot it on your notes. And I'll show you that there's commands that certainly no one could totally do. Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, which is Yahweh there. And remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn 
with, uh, and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. So there's a command in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet to a rebellious people, circumcise yourself to the Lord. The heart is mentioned. Now I'll jot this one down. I'll read it to you. Jeremiah 9.26. Jeremiah 9.26. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clipped the hair on their temples, religious act in that case, for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. So they were circumcised. But their heart was as pagan as the Moabites. Does that make sense? Not the owl word. Not what family you're born into. Makes you right with God. Not, what, not your nationality. Not the religion of your forefathers and mothers. But your relationship to the Lord. This is an Old and New Testament issue. It isn't just unique in our day. Jeremiah 24, 7, jot this one down. Here is the promise of God. And there's a command and also a promise is telling us, turn to God and believe the promise because you can't do it. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord. And they will be my people and I will be their God and they will return to me with their whole heart. So the need to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength is only going to happen with this circumcised heart that God gives that changes even our inner motivations, our goals, our desires, our relationship with him is foremost, and only then will this happen. It doesn't happen because we decided to turn over a new leaf as a New Year's resolution. The pagans can make a resolution. God changes hearts. Jeremiah 31, 34, New Covenant context. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah 32, 39, jot it down. Jeremiah 32, 39. And I will give them one heart and one way that they will fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. God gives a new heart. God gives the fear of God. God circumcises the heart. God changes us from the inside out so that we're different people. And we no longer desire to be like the pagans. Now, it's easy to point to the pagans. They're everywhere. And the wickedness is really wicked. It is so bad, it grieves us. But God can change people who turn to him. Oh, I... Maybe I'll bring this one up another time. I have in my notes because of time. Uh, Kemp and Rosner have a great approach to this. Eric has mentioned it. Adam has mentioned it. But I'll give you the, the highlight. And I found it in this section here about how Paul uses the Old Testament concerning the law. 
for the point one, this is Rosner, I think, camp on Rosner in their commentary. Repudiation, polemical repudiation, can't be justified by what law. Two, radical replacement, it's the new covenant. And three, wholehearted reappropriation. So I think if you unpack their approach, you see how Paul is using the Old Testament. He's still talking about the heart, still talking about the commandments of God, still talking about circumcision, but he's grasped the promise aspect of it. And and I think they've done a great service in helping us see that. And it says these are three different aspects of how both Jesus and Paul think of the law as being fulfilled in Christ. That's worth studying some more. Let's go to verse 20. Verse 20. 1 Corinthians 7, 20. Here is a reiteration of the basic command of Paul. Let each one remain in that situation in life in which he was called. Remain is imperative in the Greek. Meno, stay put, stay put. Now, that doesn't mean things won't change. That doesn't mean things do change. Uh, They do. Paul's situation did. He didn't stay as a student of Judaism. He became an apostle of Christ. But until that happens in God's sovereign work, we aren't here to overturn families, our jobs, the life we live, or to be a witness for Christ. Remain there. Don't, don't try to force everything to change all around us. What does change, what changes is our attitude toward our situation. That's my statement. I can prove it from Scripture. What changes is our attitude toward our situation. I mentioned that when I was at Iowa State as a new Christian. Wow, I'm going to get better grades because I'm studying instead of partying. Imagine that. Uh, I'm going to be a better worker because I'm going to show up. And I'll show you that that will do actually change things. First, one, turn here, 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33. This is a preview. Preaching through Corinthians will get there eventually. 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33. This shows how we change in attitude, not necessarily changing situations. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a change. When we were serving sin, world, darkness, we weren't doing anything to the glory of God. Now we do all. Verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That is to live so as to honor God and not offend everyone around us. Boy, I need help with that all the time. 1 Corinthians 10.33, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. I don't want to be such a horrible person at work that it turns off people to my testimony of Christ. I think that's the point there. Here's another one. 
Jot this down. I'll read it to you. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Take note of it. It's very important. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So that's how you live out your situation. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance as the Lord Christ whom you serve. The next section will talk about those who were called, they were slaves and then in the Roman system of slavery and then converted. I want to mention, I said I wanted this book I'm reading that I'm going to write about three-fourths of the way through. It takes the total opposite view of this. They don't mention this. That's the big downfall. Do you know how many popular Christian books do almost no exegesis? They'll throw out a proof text and don't do one thing to convince you or me that how they're using that text is how it was meant by the author. Never done. Throw it out there. Let me give you an example. There's a famous group called YWAM. They published this book I'm reading. And they're accusing everyone who does what Paul says here as being rebellious against God. And here's how they do it. I heard this myself in the 80s. They say, go means change of location. Go is the command. Go, this is the Great Commission. So if you stay in your situation, you're sinning against God. Of course, how does that profit them? It fills up their organization. Everybody has to change locations. The only exception would be if you get a special revelation from God that you get to stay. No, I already have that right here. And it's not a, it's not a revelation through a prophet or through my own imagination. It's objective black and white scripture. So I'm reading this book. I'm reading this. I'm reading this book. I'm reading this. Who are you going to listen to, Paul or these Christianized organizations that have their own agenda? It's not a sin to stay put where you are because Paul told you to. And there are these virtue signalers and guilt manipulators who say, well, okay, if you can't go, then you better give money to somebody who does. God will distribute his people on the scene of history according to his purpose. Missionaries will go out. The word will go out. People will go places. And that's God's capable of doing that. We don't need more guilt from hyper-pious, self-righteous people writing books to make it worse for us. And I'm challenging whoever. I'm going to write an article about this. Why don't you do your exegesis and tell us why we should ignore Paul? They won't do it. They won't do it at all. I'm one who went to University of the Nations as a guest teacher to teach Romans for a friend of mine. I'll teach Romans to anybody anywhere. But we went to go to chapel. I said, i got to get my Bible before we go to chapel. I spent a week teaching through Romans 1 through 8. He said, you won't need it. You're safe. You go to chapel, you're not going to hear the Bible. Do you really believe we can have a robust, powerful, godly, biblical Christianity where the people are left clueless about biblical exegesis? And the ones who do it 
act like, well, I'll just throw the proof text out. That's all anybody needs. So go. You rebellious, evil ones, you're staying home. You better send us some money. That's so bad. And it bothers me because I know people have been harmed by it. People's lives have been destroyed by being told that they're wicked Christians for doing just what Paul said right here. I promise you that won't happen. We're not going to. We will support those who go because that's what God called them to do, and they're convinced of it. But we're not going to give you more guilt if you're an ordinary Christian witnessing for Christ in your family, in your neighborhood, on the streets of the city where you live, because God told us to do that. And so equipping the saints with the tools of exegesis is what's going to save them from these guilt manipulators. They're everywhere. So there, that's my statement. Okay, now here is, just to show you as we go to the next slide, I want to show the chiastic structure where it begins, middle, end with the same statements three times. Next week we'll do the second half of this. 717 through 24. 17, as God has called each person, cast us, each one individually, so he must live. So must he live. 720, we just called. Remain, may know, stay put, in that situation in life, which you is called. And then in verse 24, after talking about slavery, in whatever situation someone was called, let him remain in it. Three times. Beginning, middle, end. That's very emphatic in the Greek. Stay where you are. God saved you, first and foremost, to be a witness where you are. And that doesn't mean nothing will ever change. That doesn't mean nobody will ever move or get a different job or go on the mission field or will get an education. Those are part of choices we have within our liberty but the first principle is to stay where you are. Don't get rid of your wife. Don't get rid of your husband. Don't tell everybody else to take a hike. Stay there and be the person with a circumcised heart, with the joy of the Lord, serving the master and witnessing for him. Now, implications and applications. I didn't leave a lot of time, but let's keep going here. Everyone in Christ has already gained an eternal status upgrade. <laughs> I love that. Eternal status of great. I was telling you about that radio station I've been listening to as a satellite. There's a group called uh, Address Change Notification. And uh, pretty cool song. Converted person just had an address change notification. Citizen of heaven. Wow. The greatest calling is being called into fellowship with the Son. All who are in Christ are new creations whatever their lot in this life. You know what also grieves me, and I heard this so much in seminary by some, it totally grieves me that what I'm preaching, based on what Paul taught, the naysayers, the secular critics say, that's just the church abusing people and telling them they can't get a better situation in life. It's keeping them down. No, we're not keeping anybody down. This is about being liberated, and you can and may change. But this is about honoring God, and they talked about that. Um, 
as if you got to get somewhere else. You got to go up the ladder of mobility or you're not a good Christian. It's just not right. Galatians 3, 28, 29. Let's go to that. Eternal change of status. Standing before God. Galatians 3, 28, 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. By the way, yes, there are Greeks, Jews, slaves, frees, male and female. Those are valid categories. But in regard to how we judge our status, whether we're important or not, you are all one in Christ Jesus. For if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Uh, The family of God, heirs of the promises, children of the king. One of the songs I have, I like to listen to, thank God, thank God, I'm a child of the king. Those who belong to Christ by faith are partakers in eternal promises. Why, beloved, do these truths weigh so lightly on evangelicalism? Why do evangelical seminaries poo-poo all this as some uh, upper-class people trying to keep everybody else in their place? That's what they say. Why simply teaching what the Bible says? Why is it labeled by Christians as abusive? I didn't consider it abusive. When I heard the gospel and I was saved and I was a part of the family of God, because I'll never get a greater status upgrade forever and ever and ever. Colossians, read, sometimes just read again, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. From the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son. This unity applies to all believers. Those who are born of God, part of his family. This does not negate distinctions such as those mentioned here. This is my statement. Paul addresses spiritual status before God. The Corinthians were continually arguing about it. I'm of this. I'm of that. I got the greater gift. I'm more powerful. I've been to heaven. Yes, they claim that. We have a video out right now on YouTube where we talk about that claim. I have revelations you don't have. I belong to a church with a better preacher. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. No. We are children. We're children of God, Abraham's offspring. This status upgrade we've already gotten is so great, it can't be improved upon. We can simply be more faithful in it as we serve. And only God knows who's doing better. Dr. Schreiner, he's one of the teachers that was at seminary when I was there. Equality as members of Abraham's family does not rule out all social distinctions. Paul is not negating all distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Then he goes on to point out there's still promises to national ethnic Israel. He's right about that. And he mentions Romans 9, 11, Romans chapters 9 through 11. I appreciate that Dr. Schreiner points that out. There's still a future for Israel. God will still keep his promises to Abraham, including those to the ethnic descendants. The word seed, offspring there, sperma, 
is an Old Testament allusion to God's promise to Abraham and his covenant promises. Our inheritance is gained by faith in Christ and is by God's gracious promises, not worldly fame, power, or money. When God saves someone, it doesn't matter who they were. We don't tend to think that way. If God saves a movie star, now we better take notice. Are you sure? I appreciate God saving movie stars or the person who runs the checkout line at the grocery store or the person at the car wash or the person at the office at business or the person who fixes cars or sells cars, the person who has this role or that role, all have a new status with Christ. But we tend to think too worldly, like it's more significant when somebody seemingly important comes to Christ. God calls the movie star to stay in their situation, witness for Christ, just like everyone else. 1 Corinthians 1 9, this is a review. We talked about this earlier. I preached through this verse. The fellowship of the Son, this is so key. 1 Corinthians 1 9 from the ESV. God is faithful by whom you were called, there's our word again, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a fantastic statement. Fellowship of his Son. That's what we're called to. And it preempts everything else. It means it doesn't mean we quit everything else, but that this new relationship and new identity is so profound, so fantastic, that everything else pales in comparison. Nothing is greater than being an heir of God and his promises. I point out a little uh, technical thing here of the son's genitive, uh, and, and there's discussion about how that works in this particular statement, but it implies not only with the Son, but with one another in Christ. Our fellowship was with Christ and with one another. All in the body are attached to the head, Jesus Christ. The word for fellowship, koinonia, often most people know that. It's been transliterated a lot, meaning sharing of a common life together. That's why it's exciting to get to church on Sunday. Here through the door comes the people we've been praying for. Here comes the sons and daughters that we of the Lord that we have so much in common with. Not that all of life other than that isn't so good, but I love it when we get together. God keeps his promises, and our assurance is grounded in God's faithfulness to his promises to those who he's called to himself. That's my statement. Let me just introduce this. I don't have time to do justice to it, but another statement of the same thing, new creation people, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, from now on, then we know, do not know anyone in a purely human way, even if we've known Christ in a purely human way, then we, in other words, he's this Jewish guy that showed up and made some claims, purely human, we don't know him that way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. And look, 
literally, it's uh, to get your attention. Behold, look, look, new things have come. New things have come. Verse 17 explains the effects of Christ's work. We are new creations in him. And uh, Jesus Christ, God the Son, the creator of the whole universe, second person of the Trinity, came into our world, the very world he created, John 1, 1 through 18, was born of a virgin in fulfillment of prophecy, lived a sinless life, made, did many mighty deeds that only he could do. No one else will. And predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. And he died for sins once for all, the just or the unjust, in order to bring us to God. He ascended into heaven before witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. And there he is available to all call upon him, the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1. Today, he calls us to repent and believe the gospel. Turn from that old way of living for self and sin, looking for pleasure, looking for status in this world. Turn to Christ where he receives children to himself, become a child of the king. That's what it means to respond to the call and to be called to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you made us part of your family. And Lord, may we have wisdom and motivation to live godly lives in the situation in which we were called at the time. And as many changes have happened for many of us, May we still continue to live as godly witnesses in whatever situation we're in and make changes as wisdom and necessity requires, but never stop loving you and caring for one another. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.